You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is on principle. I usually say challenge in Jewish education. I think this is just a challenge to Jews. And I have to tell you, I'm here with Rabbi Yitzhak Adlerstein, my very good friend who lives in Yerushalayim, who has that great school of living in Yerushalayim. Rabbi Yitzhak, we here in the U.S. are careening towards Pesach and people are making their plans. We are hearing, of course, about what's happening in Eretz Yisrael. We can't not hear about it. It's being blasted everywhere. But you informed me this week that it isn't just noise and fake news and uh, just a, a malcontents and we don't we shouldn't even worry about it. You informed me that, and you and many others believe, this is indeed a, a period that Judaism should be concerned, world Judaism should be concerned, because what happens in Eretz Yisrael is going to have ripple effects everywhere. So talk about how... Uh, the left's continuing days of protests and consistently demonizing everything that's going on uh, in this government, especially uh, that that part of the government that is populated by the Haredim. Talk about why what's happening is something that should concern everyone, the Frum and Haredi element in Eretz Yisrael, and even us here on the other side of the pond. Now, first of all, it was a very clever view to frame it as, hey, let's talk about those evil guys on the left. Not that I suspect we're on different sides of this. Judicial reform, though, has gone beyond judicial reform. Um, many people believe that most of the protesters don't understand the first thing about the issues. But what they are panicking about is, uh, and for good reason, that the the kind of basis of the Jewish state that they've been used to for many decades is about to disappear. Uh, they've been incited, that's true, but they have they have grounds for suspicion. Uh, we could talk a long time about how, as you indeed correctly said, that the left has been guilty, not only of incitement, you know, I, I, the word I would use would be sedition, but that doesn't take away from the from the real issues that are here. By sedition, I mean, that, yes, they created the crisis, the economic crisis that Israel is looking at right now. Uh, the dollar, the shekel is weakened against the dollar to the lowest level in many, many, many years. It was up to 3.71 today, and I think it's still falling. But that's because you had people in the opposition who were saying, you know, the world economic community is going to lose faith in our economy because they're going to assume that we're no longer ruled by the rule of law, so their money won't be safe here. And then you had some of the uh, some of the uh, top top um, billionaires in Israel who took their money out and uh, placed it with a bank called San Jose Bank, and quickly came crying back to the government. But in a sense, that's that's all water under the bridge. Protests have been going on for eleven weeks. Whatever damage has been done has been done, but the country is in the middle of a crisis. I have a Muna Shlema that I'm Yisrael Chai, Netzach Yisrael Yishaker. Israel is not going to disappear from the face of the earth, but it could get it could get a lot worse. And anti dot whether it's Haredi or Datilumi feeling in the country has has gone up 
palpably in the last weeks. There is so much hatred out there. Which obviously needs to be said. It isn't so much, oh, since they are pushing uh, in a certain ministry, A or B, it's been latent. And whereas up until now, when I could just hate them and they're not really part of my life, and they're not really going to affect me, now that they are such great players in the government, now all that anti-feeling uh, has risen and has become so uh, so combustible, right? And I think you, you pointed, uh, when we were talking about last week about what to discuss, you mentioned how I should zero in on, a, I guess, an editorial that was written by the editor of the Haredi World's favorite glossy magazine. Sorry, Yitzchak Frankfurter. Mishpacha. And, and I mispronounced his name before. I thought he was the same name as the, the head of CBS before. But Eli Palay, who wrote uh, an essay in the uh, March 8th edition, Time for Dialogue, he writes that we know that even though they're talking about democracy, it's really demography. They really realize that all the numbers that they've been hearing about Haredi growth population, all the stuff Kahana, by the way, was always saying about uh, about the Arabs, which is the same thing that the the extreme left have been saying about Haredim. They uh, they multiply like rabbits. Sounds a little like Paro, a little bit, right? They multiply like, like rabbits. And it's one thing if they're just sitting in their vinkel and uh, we can take pictures of them and, uh, you know, and, 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 and do, you know, revivals of Fedor on the roof. But it's another thing if they're actually holding the strings of government and they are now larger than anything merits or any of the other parties were. So now... The, they're quaking. The left is really quaking in their boots, not so much because the Supreme Court is going to get its wings clipped, but rather that's that sounds good enough to Western ears. But what really is bothering them is, is that uh, they aren't going to control things. And, and, and Pelé makes some, a point that I thought actually uh, stirred me a little bit. We were the ones who built this country. This is them talking. When you guys were just on the Chaluka, right, and just getting here, and we were the ones that were managing to build the roads, the infrastructure, we were the ones that had the generals and the leaders, the ones that were running the Shin Bet and running the intelligent community, and really creating this modern miracle of a state. And now, because of your demographic, because of uh, of your population, it's going to be taken away from us. And that's, I, I, Pelé, I think, is right. Because why else are so many generals and so many security people all uh, chiming in about how terrible this government is? Well, I'm going to I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment, if you'd like, which usually makes it more interesting. Uh, and I'd say that there there are two points that one could take issue with. One is that it's not just the question of the demographic, because it's still something for the future, and it's not that at the moment. Uh, control has been shifted to a coalition that's right of center, which scares them. It's the fact that there was one institution, there was one institution that served and serves to that part of the country as a guarantee that they won't be deprived of their of their rights. Um, there, there's some pretty 
extremists. There's some extreme people in this country on all sides, not just the right, but on the left as well. Now that the, the tide has shifted and they see the ferocity in their eyes of which the first thing that the new government does before it takes care of, of, of roads, of the IDF, of security is let's get those evil guys on the bagats on the Supreme Court uh, to um, let's clip, let's clip their wings. They're afraid that the one institution that they could depend on is now going to disappear effectively and be totally at the beck and call of a legislature. And it's not, and then you're right. It's not just this government, which eventually will fall and be replaced by a different government, but for the future, there are going to be more right-wing governments because that is where the dem- that is where the demographic is. And the, the Bagats, which is the Bezin Godel, sort of the Supreme Court, uh, we've talked off pod, and most of our listeners, I think, are sophisticated to know that this is a institution that is unchained in a way, unlike the U.S. Supreme Court, that there are very strict measures about numbers and about what they rule on and how they interpret law. Uh, these guys strike down laws. These guys could say, oh, this goes against the, this goes against uh, human uh, dignity. This goes against the essential natural law uh, of, 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 of Rousseau and Kant and Leo Strauss. And, and we know that that is, in a way, giving people, uh, you know, a tremendous amount of power. I'm, uh, I'm glad you didn't say in John Lennon. <laughs> yes, you're talking about the uh, the classic Imagine song, I guess. Exactly. Well, it's great that we can read each other's minds. Well, you, well, yeah, well. As, listen, you were in the entertainment capital of the world for so many years. I'm sure. As uh, <laughs> who was it that said? I think it was Rav Yeruchim who spent a little bit of time in in Mir in New York, and he had a, an apartment a block away. And he would walk that little block to the Mir Yeshiva, which where I learned as well. And they said that they could see that he was physically suffering. And someone asked him, they said, you, this is a Bismedrish, just like in Europe. And you, you, you walk one block from your home, the apartment we have for you. Why is it so disconcerting? Why, why are you so unraveled by it? And he said, look, you're right. It's only a block. But can you imagine, let's say a person lived in a city that was built on distilling spirits and liquor. Every block, even the homes of of people who are living other lives, would be suffused with that smell. This is the smell of Chutzloritz. The smell of Chutzloritz is that way, even though he's making that block. So in the same way, I guess we've all, you in L.A. and me just being who I am. I'm going to have to get off. I'm going to have to get off this uh, this podcast because I once did a uh, small role in a film uh, right next to Ringo Starr, who actually was sort of one of my neighbors in Los Angeles. Did, did they say Ringo, there was a question of whether maybe he had some Jewish uh, ancestry. Wasn't there something about the possibility of, of the Starkies being somewhere Jewish? I don't know. You know, it, it doesn't really matter. I Every, tell you, Brian Epstein, we know the Brian Exactly. Epstein. You got Brian Epstein. He made the Beatles the Beatles. So it's like, you know, 
Anyway, the point is, I just want to say for the record, um, Lenin, unfortunately, had a lot of bad interactions with Jews when he was young and really didn't like them too much at all. So what I will say, though, is that we're getting back to our subject at hand. Yeah, there's a crisis. Pillay says that he thinks the answer is dialogue. And what we need to do while we're in power um, and we have our representatives is to meet these protesters somewhere in some sort of uh, <clears throat> neutral ground and say, let's hear what your complaints are. Come and talk with us. We want to show you that we're not, we don't have horns. We don't have, we're not ready to bash you over the head. We want to hear from you. And we rec- we understand that you have a point and that you are scared and afraid. And we owe you for what you've done up until the Begin era and beyond for you and your parents and grandparents for helping create this country. That's basically what Palais says. And he says he's got an institution that he created for it. Do you think that's going to cut the mustard? I think it's a great message. And perhaps it's all that Eli Palais could say because he runs, he walks a tightrope. As you know, Mishpacha is banned from most uh, main, mainstream Haredi families. In Is that so? Yeah. That's, and that's even the Israeli mishpacha. The Hebrew mishpacha, if you have it, it's, it's, you're not going to get the shidduch that you were hoping for? I would not put it on any girl's shidduch resume that her parents uh, <laughs> yeah. get it in any manner or form. But they, still, it's a, it's a very influential magazine. And uh, even, the, even the English version... Uh, speaks to people not only in Chutzlaritz, but lots and lots of Anglo Haredim in, in Israel. But he still has to be very careful, and he is very careful. He's a very clever guy. He's a wonderful guy who's done, uh, I, I, I'm a very, very big fan of Mishpacha, even though they would probably never publish anything that I wrote, although they do publish my letters pretty frequently. But it was a little exasperating that the most that Eli Pele could do was to say we should be better listeners without proposing anything lamaasa. You know, making that plea may have been all that he could do, but is there nothing more that we could be doing? And you know, I, I had two naive ideas, which um, one is one is doable, one perhaps not. The doable one, which I I hope will still happen, is that. According to the latest proposal, they're going to defer most of the legislation till after Pesach. Pesach will be a great time for musicians to do the kind of healing that they've done at other times, to get big musical events that that have both secular and Haredi musicians, Atilumi musicians all together and all and all singing songs about us. I think that could be a very healing measure. The other one is that, uh, and this. John Lennon's words, imagine, imagine if we had a cadre of people who would be willing to rent vehicles and drive into Tel Aviv and to mix with people and say, hey, we're Datilumi, we are Haredim, we understand your grievances. And the first thing that we got to tell you is we're not out to change the country into one of Kfiadatit. We're perfectly happy to leave things the way they are. Yes, we would like to see that the old rules about Chametz and Pesach 
that affect the lives of so many people are not summarily dismissed by a Supreme Court that has no right ruling on it in the first place. Yes, that is true. But we're not about to legislate morality police. This is not going to turn into Tehran. We don't want to live in such a state. We wouldn't trust it. We know our own shortcomings. We don't want it. Ad bias hagoel. Until Mashiach comes, democracy, even an uneven, imperfect democracy, is our best bet on living together. But we don't have a cadre. Okay. Kviyadatit is what, what you're talking about is, like you say, um, uh, policing how women should be dressed, pol- policing the beaches. Uh, however, there, there would, would there be more things closed on Shabbat? If this coalition has its way, will there be more things that that uh, you know, will, more offices and buses will reach Haifa? Is that part of? Is that on the table? It's not on the table at the moment. Uh, could it be at the table? I I do believe that there's some people, both in in the the Haredi parties and in the Dati Lumi parties, who would push for some of it. Uh, we have some pretty incompetent people as our politicians, probably advisable not to mention the names right now, maybe a different time, uh, who did start making such, such, uh, such pushes. But it's, it's not, it's, remember that they are members of a coalition. They're not majority members of the coalition. And BB does a good job allowing them to shoot their mouths off and then reining them in. What about, what about the other hot button issue, which is, uh, the tour for Yeshiva Bachram and Kolil Yungalite from the army and from national service. So that, that, that actually is one of the things that's contributing to the crisis right now. Certainly not the only one, but there's particular urgency among, among the Haredi MKs to get this thing passed and passed before Pesach because the last deadline that was issued by the Supreme Court for coming up with a comprehensive program of dealing with uh, Haredi requirements to serve is going to pass in a matter of weeks. So they want to make sure that there's a bill that it, that takes the exemption of B'nai Torah and enshrines it in law in such a way that the Supreme Court cannot immediately strike it down as is its want. It strikes down anything which it says, no, that's unreasonable without having to find recourse on anything else. So that's one of the things that's been pushing for the timing. The timing has been absolutely horrendous. It's certainly not reassuring to the, uh, to the, the opposition, which is close to half of the country. It's, they, they lost the election. They lost it by a healthy margin, no matter what they say. It was a healthy margin. But they're still a big chalik of the country, and they're important people, and they're fellow Yidden. Speed in which this thing was done, everybody realizes. Everybody realizes. Simcha Rotman realizes it. Levin realizes it. Everybody realizes that you can't push something as big as major judicial reform and foist it on the country just on the basis of your majority without arriving at some kind of consensus. So, why was everything pushed so quickly? What's the urgency? Levin says the urgency is he's afraid that the Supreme Court is going to give him the boot that they're going to find the pretext for removing him from office. Uh, Haredim are afraid that uh, there won't be a draft law. And uh, where will B'nai Torah be there? 
And uh, still others are afraid that uh, the left has been pushing so hard that they'll find a way to topple the government before they can make any of these changes. And that'll be another 30 years. Two points. One of the things that it looks like the left is doing, and, and they seem to be successful at it, is saber rattling all over the world, whether it's in uh, in the U.S., in England, maybe Australia, any of the other democracies where Jews are comfortable and play any role. They're, they are hearing voices about how terrible things are in Israel. And many American Jews who aren't as well-read and don't have the time to be as well-read are hearing those shouts and are saying, yeah, and we know that if uh, American donors start pulling the plug on so many projects, that many of the things that people would want to happen here to throw isn't going to happen. Um, so it sounds like they are, uh, you know, they're doing... Finally, Hasbara is working. We always said that Israeli Hasbara is, is so terrible. When we talk about our flight, plight versus the Arabs, I think this could be an example of effective Hasbara, right? They finally did it against the Arabs. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't get the world's ear. But against the, the Frumo or against the right wing, it sounds like, you know, all they got to do is cut and paste from some of what's happening in other situations. Another thing I, I want to know, Rebutzkok, and, and this is sort of my own Nigius, and I heard this from Dayonim, who are friends of mine, that in the 90s, the Bagats clipped completely the wings of the Bezdin Rabbani Agodo. Uh, they, they really limited what areas they could pass it on. And because of that, a cottage industry arose of smaller Batidinim that weren't funded by the government, and you had various community but they didn't. And Baruch Hashem, Klaus Yisrael knows how to, how to get Dayanim to Paskin. But I think that this judicial reform, if it's pushed through, it might help reestablish a Besden system again, like it was for so many years, led by people like uh, Rav Yitzhak Nisim, by Rav Herzog, by Rav Bitzal Jolti, by Rav Yoshev, by Chocham Avadia, by Ravzal Menachemia and others, because it's been it's been dormant, and that would be great, I think, uh, for for people who love to see Psakaloch in action, for that to come back, um, and maybe that's the type of thing that that the Haredim can remember. Hey, it wasn't so terrible, right? True, there was this Bagats, but we at least had our Botedinim, our Dayonim. I would say the best and the brightest. I just mentioned those names, Rebel Yoshev, right? The best and the brightest were in a government in system. In that system. And and that would be, I'm not going to, you know, quoting the, you know, Tevya song, that might be the sweetest thing of all, right? That we could somehow b- make these compromises. I'm not sure about whether you really want to go there, because although you point to something very real and kind of like the golden age of of the of the rabbinate, on, on the other hand, they did a darn good job making sure that the, as many people from the Dati Lumi community that they could that they could marginalize, they did, and made it practically impossible for anybody in the Dati Lumi world to get even the the minor the minor positions, let alone let alone some of the major ones. You're talking about the Rabbanut. I'm talking about the Rabbanut, right? Okay. In other words, when the Rabbanut was getting injected with all the 
uh, you know, government largesse and they were doing stuff, they also became increasingly more yeshivish. And politicized and corrupt. And there were people like my good friend David Stav and others who were completely left out, is what you're saying. Right. It's a good point. And I think, you know, when we talk about Rabbi Yitzchak Ariel and Rabbi Epstein and many others from the Mizrahi camp, you know, you're right. It's wrong that they should have been left out. But maybe now that they're, aren't they part of the government? Maybe what I'm trying to say is maybe a compromise could be reached where, look, Bagats, you still have your space, but allow our Bagats, our Bezdan Hagodo, let it have its splendor somewhat again, like it did in those glory days. Maybe that would be an interesting compromise that the, the left might be willing to be macabre. Right now, the left is not willing to talk about anything, uh, any anything that that smacks of any kind of compromise. I think uh, Herzog's president Herzog's compromise was not his best day, and he he lost an opportunity, probably forever, to be an effective arbiter here because he it, it was so totally uncomprehending. Why don't you tell us what he said? Because I'm not familiar. So uh, look. To, to do that, you really have to start with what the main issues are. And that's not going to take very long. There are really three issues, which the coalition is now doing, not probably in the best order. The three issues are appointment of justices to the Supreme Court. Right now, it's basically an old boys and old girls uh, system where the, the Supreme Court and their cronies, meaning the Israel Bar Association. They, they appoint their successors. They essentially appoint successors. They have a veto power of it, the way it's set up right now. And that that could be dangerous. Although, uh, let's come back to this later, uh, Alan Dershowitz did a uh, really strong approbation for that, for that system, which we can maybe talk about later or another time. The other two issues are the much greater issues. One is justiciability, which means what is it that the court can rule on? The court under Aaron Barak basically said everything is law. That's a quote. Everything is law and extended the wings of the judiciary to cover everything. The judiciary therefore weighed in on the gas deal with Lebanon. What does that have to do with the Supreme Court? It weighed in on appointing ministers. It, and furthermore, in that, in, in exercising their power, they came up with this idea of reasonableness. They don't have to point to anything in law. They can just say, well, we look at the real intent of the law, not what the law says. What are they really trying to do? And if we find it wanting, we can say it's unreasonable and strike it down. That's one thing. The sweep of the law, how far it goes. The other one is standing. In Israel today, anybody can bring suit to the Supreme Court about anything because the Supreme Court will deal with anything and you don't have to have, and you don't have to be a baldover. You don't have to have a direct interest in it. It's interesting, Rabbi Yitzhak, as you talk, how, and I'm just, I marvel at how counter it is to everything that our great Yisro said, right? Yisro, the beginning of, of, of the Parsha, it's almost the exact opposite. Dover right? They, they, right. They, they, it, the whole idea was that it should be only the biggest issues, and there should be the smaller uh, groups to deal with these other 
points of my tent is infringing on yours. And it sounds like we, we don't even listen to the eights of the, of the Chacham Ben Agoyim. My friend Moshe Kapel, who's been one of the real architects of judicial reform and worked on this literally for decades, one of the smartest guys in the state of Israel today. Moshe Kapel has said, and he actually broke with some of the, the people in the, in the coalition. He said he thinks that the override clause, which is what most people are hearing about, that a legislature, after a Supreme Court strikes down a law, the legislature can say, well, by a simple majority, they can overrule the Supreme Court. You can understand why people, why good people, why people who are in the reserves and, and form the heads of, uh, of, of the Mossad and, and, and everybody saying that leads to dictatorship. And it really does. Moshe Capel has argued that override, at least by a simple majority, is a terrible idea. If we could fix the other two issues, there would be no need to have such override because the Supreme Court would be, would, would be limited to dealing with the important cases of preserving human rights, of understanding what can be and cannot be done in a democracy. According to certain things, no constitution, but according to basic laws, which are introduced by legislative bodies themselves. So that would solve 90% of what's wrong with the court. We wouldn't need an override clause. Well, I can tell you as a person who sits on Dine Taira somewhat frequently, if we don't have something in writing, if we just say reasonableness, if we just say human rights, there needs to be, whether it's a constitution or a 10-page uh, letter of intent of how it should happen, there needs to be something that we can point to. Both Those 10 us- pages, are the basic laws. And there are strict rules about what makes something a basic law. The Supreme Court has arrogated to itself the power to override basic laws. That would be the equivalent of the Supreme Court in the United States saying, if we find something in the Constitution that we don't like, we can overrule the Constitution. Right. Which, that, which... that has to change. But the, the, what the Israeli public and, and world leaders, because of the, the seditious nature of the left, have told everybody is democracy is up for grabs. Because if a simple majority, if, if having a simple majority of the Senate is enough to undo the Constitution, yes, democracy in the United States would be in danger. And it would be here, too. We haven't listened sufficiently to that side. I Personally, I believe that both, both uh, Yeniv Levin and, uh, and Simcha Rodman understand that and are prepared to compromise on that. People have talked about a, a majority of 80 uh, necessary for override, which will ensure that, you know, it, it, that's, that's not going to happen because of one, one uh, party being in power. Uh, that, that might be a way. People have suggested 90. A, a, a secular law professor suggested even 65, which I didn't quite understand. But 61, the way it's framed right now, and there are people in Likud who are saying, no, this is a this is a, a hill worthwhile dying on. 61. That that scares a lot of people, and it should. And it should. And it will scare the financial communities outside the United States. It means that 
and anything, any democratic feature of Israel can be undone. I think it also feeds all the BDS and anti-Israel people around the world, because although technically they could say, look at the protests for democracy, the bigger picture is, but you see what Israel is? Israel really is not a democracy. And this is what we've been telling you all this time. This is South Africa. This is an apartheid state. And I think that they don't realize how they are feeding and fueling that dragon that had gone away for a little while and is now going to come back roaring because all the quotes about how terrible the state is, they're all on record, they're all in public media. And that I believe is going to uh, you know, pay terrible dividends because people are going to point to the fact, whoever's in power, that this is not a true democracy. It's interesting, you know, before we started recording, you sent me an article from Rabbi Lau, who uh, is a wonderful man, a really such a sweet person. He was what Rebel Yoshev had in mind when he said, that's what we need for the chief rabbi. We need to have someone who is a teddy bear of a person who's Machshev Torah, knows his place as a Talmud Chacham, knows where he stands, and can be a great uh, speaker who 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 uh, has the history of the Holocaust behind him, uh, and, 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 and yet the twinkle uh, of the Sabra in him. You sent me his article where he's sort of like, like contradicting himself. Like we are a democracy, we're not a democracy, right? I didn't read it that way. I, I read it with a little bit more charity. I thought what he said was perfect. I almost always think what he says is perfect. I've seen him. I've seen him in action spontaneously with non-Jewish groups in the United from come from the United States, and and just how everything he said was such so per- picture perfect. He was at a little get together of a number of people from different uh, different parties, and they had a conversation, and he said, you know, perfectly. He said, Israel is first and foremost a Jewish state. He didn't save that for the end. That was his opening, his opening paragraph. Israel is a Jewish state. And he, he backed it up. He, he said the word democracy is not used in the Declaration of Independence even once. Jewish is used 20 times. But then he said, but of course we're democratic. Of course we're democratic. How could it be otherwise? We know what it's like to live in countries that are not democratic. We know in our own lifetimes. We don't want that. We don't want that. It has to be a democracy. Who would want to live in a dictatorship, even if it's a dictatorship of our own? We can't, we can't abide by that. So putting the two of them together was such a, a curative balm for troubled spirits, for everyone other than the, than the most extreme. But I do want to come back to something I said before. I, I said that we need hundreds of people to go into secular strongholds and say, you know, you can curse at us, you can spit at us. We're here to tell you that we're not out to take over the country. We don't want that. We want democracy. But the Haredi community can't deliver that because who are the people who could do that? Well-trained yeshiva guys. But the Haredi establishment will never, they, they allow guys off to, to, you know, a week before elections that the, the, but they medrash in, in some yeshivas. In, in order to make sure everybody is registered so they should get the votes out. Right. Uh, especially in cemeteries. Uh, <laughs> I see. Sounds like Chicago. To, sounds like old time Chicago to me. Yeah. 
vote early and vote often. But imagine what would happen if if a, a few thousand yeshiva guys, now that Bain Azmanim is starting on Thursday, would go into neighborhoods, those who could speak properly, and we have lots of them, and who could say, listen, we're not as much of a threat as you think we as, as you think we are. We're here, we're listening, you're our brothers, no matter what you say about us, but not just to defend the face of Haredi Yiddishkeit, to really talk about where, where, we, where we're going together in this, and that we are together in this, and that we don't have horrible plans for a takeover and putting your interests aside. That'll happen when Mashiach comes. And the way we understand Mashiach, when it happens, it'll happen because everybody wants it to happen, not because they'll be forced. But but it's it's just not going to happen in the Haredi world. And the Dati Umi uh, spokesmen aren't aren't strong enough to do that. I'm not sure. I know I know much less of the I know much less of the world. I think I think that many of them could, and it's it's an idea. But it, uh, it's you know I I don't have uh, I don't have deep roots in that community. And especially, I think the the people that are representing them at the head of the party are considered radical in many ways. You know, we talk about Smotrich and Ben Gvir, right? Who are uh, people don't want to hear them. And I think, um, look, you know, there's there's a reason why. I don't know if this is true about Aryeh Dairy, but there's a reason why people end up where they end up in the Parnosa and the situation they end up with, right? <laughs> Obviously, the people who will become professional politicians. It isn't like Rav Reinus, uh, who felt, you know, he was a Rav and a Darshan. He felt, uh, well, for Klal Yisrael, I've got to work and become a member of the Zionist party and create Mizrahi and, and others. The people today who are the political uh, tumblers, uh, who, right, I, I think, Be'etzim, and again, you'll, again, it's snobbish maybe on my part to say this, that they, they're not suffused with the idealistic Musar and Midas of Mesilas Yisharim and of Bnei Taira, right? Otherwise, they would have picked a different area to devote all their zman in, right? They would have been doing something else. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I don't know if it's really true absolute power, or but the point is, it's fun. It's lashon hara that's mutter. Uh, it's 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 activity that's happening, right? But to sit in and kvetch on on arash ben aritva to be magdir another geder nilchas ribis or shatnas or orla, that's the type of thing that takes a certain type of mentality and zitzvleish and ability to to close yourself off from the velt. So I think that what ends up is that the people who are involved there aren't necessarily the brightest. And if they're bright, they're bright, really, like the Sforno says about the door, uh, like like the door Amabel, they're, they're bright using the, their gifts, unfortunately, to undermine things. And therefore, I don't know, maybe, you know, to, to get the Eidol of B'nai Torah from Mizrahi and from, from the Yeshiva Velt to go out there and be a model, I, I think it's a shikla pipe dream, especially since you, Pele, and everyone. I don't, I don't know. I'm not ready to concede that. I, what I'm saying is that, that the left, the non-from, the people whose grandparents died in the in the Mohammed Sashikhrur and Mohammed Sheshasyamim, they still feel that this is their country. And on an emotional level, seeing a clean cut, eloquent, sweet Ibn Taira 
or whatever, is still not going to take away their fear, especially since, again, the demographic and other things is still is still the fact. Is the state going to become more religious? Are there going to be elements of the state that make it seem a firmer state than it was in the in the forties and fifties? The answer is yes. The world has moved that way, right? Are the Haredim going to give up politics and just spend their time in the yeshiva? No, they're going to stay in politics and they're going to try to fight and argue and probably be successful in pushing through legislation that's they feel is positive for them, whether it's no taxes on the uh, on the plasticware. So what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is, is that it, it, to me, that's a good PR stunt, but I don't think it's going to to, to squelch or extinguish uh, that fear. Uh, so we'll see. I, I have I feel compelled to say that Saul Smutrich is is suffering too much contempt. I don't agree with all of his uh, his positions or all of his uh, all of his stunts, but he's basically a, a good human being who, in the last weeks of the old government, was the most effective spokesman for Haredi interests. He was the one who who would denounce the provocations against the Haredi world the most. Yeah, he wasn't going to gain any votes that way. Although maybe I should take that back. Because in the end, there were plenty of Haredim who were so dissatisfied with their own representatives that they actually did vote for Smutrich. We <laughs> have, have to rethink that. But he's, he's, he's not a bad person. Uh, the point that you made, though, requires some very, very serious thought. Are we compelled to have to deal with only two kinds of people? Those whose heads are entirely in Torah, closed off from everything else in the world, don't want to get their feet dirty in local or global politics, or politicians who are not the biggest Tamidei Chachamim. This is not the way we ran Klal Yisrael for a long time, before, before the state. Certainly not true of people like Rav Chaim Ozer. Like Rav Chaim Ozer, or the Nitziv, for that matter. There's a beautiful passage in Shir Hashirim coming up soon. Rachatzti es raglai, eichacha atanfeim. And he talks there, like the, 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 the family says that of all the things that Nitziv wrote, his, his uh, beer on uh, Shira Shiram is the most. Rina Shaltara. Rina Shaltara. So he writes there that it's speaking to a person who spent his whole, his whole life working on his mitos, focusing more on his avodas Hashem, cutting himself off from, from, from things that would be distractions. And then the call comes. Cole comes, we, that we need you. We need somebody like you. And he says, I can't. I, I, I spent my whole life washing my feet. I, I'm, I'm through with walking through the mud. How can you ask me now to, to climb down and, and get, get them dirty again? But, you have no choice. And he, he goes on to explain how the person who does it, uh, when, when, he, when he gets himself involved in Inyone, Seaboard. Even if he makes mistakes, he makes a big deal of the fact that Cohen was never pointed to by the Torah as guilty for Cheda Ega. He may have been, and Rishonim, some of them do say that what happened to him later. But he says it's significant that the text itself does not point to Aaron, because Aaron got involved 
with Klal Yisrael, stayed involved with Klal Yisrael, sacrificed seemingly his own ruchnius for them because it's necessary to do with L'shem Shemayim. I'm not willing to give up on the idea. We're open enough to the world like Rav Kook was. Okay, you, you have conflated a lot here, Rabbi Yitzchak, and you've also touched my heroes and people I know a lot about. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed by what you're building. But let me just say, for the record, as much as Amavaloshenil, just like JFK said, Ich bin ein Berliner, which means I am a donut. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, I know. Ich bin ein My name, my son, after Rav Chaim from Valoshen. I've studied. I don't want to go all Lloyd Benston on you. <laughs> it's a Dan Quayle. But I will tell you that the Nitziv's role when he became a sort of quasi-political leader was a very sketchy and probably unsuccessful one. When he was the one of the Yoshvei Rosh of Chayvei Vetziyon, his idealism and lack of practicality many times undermined what Rosh Molliver and Mordechai Ashberg were trying to do he was not a symbol of of compromise and understanding of what people like Pinsker and Leland and Leland Bloom and others wanted. And they were frustrated about it. The letters, uh, Adriano's letters uh, to this point uh, indicate that he was operating on a very, very elevated level, similar to what Rav Cook as you mentioned, also tried to do or tried to imagine in terms of his writings about what this government, uh, what a government could be like. But in the in the nuts and bolts, the Nitziv was not a success. And I will say that the yeshiva suffered because of it. The yeshiva's involvement in the Nitziv's last years uh, in what was going on when he was always almost Bavleda and trying to multitask and dealing with a new wife and a bunch of kids and a bunch of, uh, you know, Haskola type of things. The yeshiva, it was toses with kfira and with difficulty. And as research has shown, uh, skullduggery and even threats of violence. So I, I don't know if pointing to the Nitziv, despite my love of everything that he wrote, and I agree with you, the Rina Shultaira is Alavai, he had put together his parish on Chumash in the same sort of careful way that he did the Rina Shultaira, which is a beer oroch, a beer kotzer, etc. So a person can really get the most of it. Granted, Nitziv is a great person, and we need his ideas. We need to be inspired by them. But he himself was not successful. You're a real Volazhner. You still, after all these years, fail to realize that what went wrong with Volazhner was not that the Nitziv was pulled in different directions. It's because I didn't introduce Musser. <laughs> I see. And that'll well, give us something to talk about. Right, next right. Time. But, but, but what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that, yes, and Rav Kook, uh, Rav Kook also, as Rav Huttner and others have pointed out, operated in many ways with the Haloma from what was really going on uh, on the ground. He wasn't like but his Kabbalistic take on everything wasn't necessarily uh, something that everybody could be in line with. And the proof in the pudding is, is that after he was Nifter, they went to someone extremely practical as the chief rabbi, someone who had a a, a very a, a big understanding of real politic and how things work, 
Rav Herzog, who was, you know, uh, a great, great brain, a great politician. So, I, you know, I, I would love to agree with you that we need the G'dayle Olam to be standing there and having the Shlit and giving us the Eitzes and telling us what to do. And you're right, Rav Chaim Eiser and others were, were, were voices that were central to the success of Aguda and success to what the Yiddishkeit was going on. But I believe that it was their das taira rather than their heavy involvement. It was their hachraz. It wasn't the fact that they ligged in the political world. I don't know, Ritzchok, uh, you, and, and I'll ask you another, a better question. Give me one candidate today. You mentioned, uh, go back in time and bring the Nitziv and Rakuk back. Is there anybody who, that you know that could even serve that role? Who would be that? Uh, you mentioned Matt Ravlau being such a sweetheart. Is there anybody who, who could represent that? My my vote would be Ravasha Weiss. Uh, here. Interessant. Interessant. Ravasha Weiss for, if not Rabba Roshi, but Mani. President of Israel. Mani Gadati. Wow. That's a great thing to end on. Rav Yitzchak, I want to, hopefully, we will hear calming. And uh, by the time we get to uh, Chagigas. Pesach and Zman, we're going to have things going to be cow to the point that uh, who knows? Maybe we'll, the, these will be the koilois, kol an, it won't be kol anois anishamea, it won't be kol milchoma, but it'll be the, the kol of, 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 of Tzmicha and Yeshua. Who knows? At least we can agree that the two of us are not going to be the musicians who are going to calm the spirits of the Jews. Oh, yeah. All right. Yes. Enjoy your uh, forays. To all the concerten, I guess you're right. If music can soothe the savage breast, there's a lot of savage heaving going on, and hopefully they can be soothed. That this is such a we'll catch you hopefully sooner than later. Take care, Rabbi Yitzchok. Hakoshev v'sameach to everyone. Hakoshev v'sameach to everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 